last week, but the last week ago, uh, I went home after the Bible study, and my son said, Dad, said, uh, you know, that was probably the world's most boring Bible study I've ever heard. And I'm thinking, what does a 16-year-old know? And then my wife says, you at least could have used some pictures. So tonight, I've worked real hard on this Bible study. We're going to study the tabernacle complete with pictures. We're going to have all kinds of pictures. And hopefully we're going to be able to, to not only explain the text in a, in a good way. I'm working hard. I'm trying to get better at this. But in addition, we're going to show you some pictures along the way that hopefully will bring the points home and help you understand exactly what it is we're talking about. Speaking of pictures... There's a model of the tabernacle out in the wilderness right there. So, before we start, let's pray and ask the Lord to bless our Bible study this evening. Father, thank you so much for your goodness toward us. Thank you for your grace toward us, Lord. And thank you for the model, for the picture that you've shown us in the tabernacle. The portrait you've painted of our Lord Jesus Christ. Of your redemptive work in our lives. All these many spiritual lessons that we're going to uncover tonight, Lord, we pray that you will you'll apply them directly to our hearts. And you'll help us to grow and benefit from having been here and having been through your word this evening. So encourage us now, Lord, by your spirit, through your word, in Jesus' name, amen. The Hebrew word translated sacrifice is the word korban, which means to come near, to approach, to become closely involved in a relationship with someone else. And this is why God established the sacrificial system of the Old Testament. These sacrifices lifted man to a higher awareness of the things of God. The Hebrews approached God aware of the severity of their sin. Through the sacrifices, they came to realize the reality of their judgment. They were assured that all of life was God-given. They were overawed by God's holiness, and certainly they were thankful for God's mercy. Every nuance of the sacrifice themselves, the tabernacle in which these sacrifices were offered, and the priests who initiated these sacrifices spoke to them of their relationship with God. Now, ultimately, Jesus has become the fulfillment of the sacrificial system for us. And in hindsight, we can see that every detail of the sacrifices, the tabernacle, the priesthood, spoke of Jesus. In fact, a study through the tabernacle will deepen our appreciation of the effectiveness and the sufficiency of the cross and priesthood of Jesus Christ. Tonight... I want to begin with an overview of the tabernacle and its furnishings. A lot of this we talked about last week, but not with pictures. And so I hope you'll enjoy the pictorial overview this evening. When you first approached the tabernacle, what you saw was a white linen fence, seven and a half feet tall. It hung from bronze posts and sockets with silver hooks and bands. The dimension of the outer court was 150 feet long by 75 feet wide, about half the size of a football field. On the east side was a gate about 30 foot wide, 
It was a linen tapestry made with blue and purple and scarlet thread. It was hung on four bronze posts that were stuck in four bronze sockets. When you walked through the gate, you came to the bronze altar where the sacrifices were actually slaughtered. This altar was seven and a half feet square by four and a half feet tall. Then just inside the altar was the bronze laver or the washing bowl that we will talk about later tonight. After the laver, you would be looking at the inner court. The inner court, the tabernacle tent, was 45 feet long by 15 feet wide by 15 feet tall. The walls of the inner court were made by wooden boards plated with gold and they were fastened together by a system of hooks and bars and bands. The tent itself was made of four tarps. The first was a linen tarp that was embroidered with cherubim or angels. It was a beautiful tapestry. Over that was goat's hair. Then over that was a tarp of ram skin dyed red. Then on top of that, the outer covering was dark, ugly badger skin. The only light inside the court came from within, from the menorah that was lit. The inner court was divided into two sections, called the holy place, and then the innermost sanctum, the holy of holies. And they were separated by a linen veil, again embroidered with angels. The first 30 feet of this tent was called the holy place, and in it were three pieces of furniture, There was the altar of incense that stood right in front of the veil. Then there was the tabernacle, I'm sorry, the table of showbread that stood on the north side of the tabernacle. On the south side was the gold lampstand or a menorah. The floor of the tabernacle was always desert dirt. Inside this veil, behind the veil, in this inner 15-foot sanctum, a 15-foot cube, by the way, This was an area known as the Holy of Holies. And here sat the Ark of the Covenant, the very throne of God on earth. And over the lid of the Ark rested a solid gold mercy seat. And it was above that mercy seat that the physical presence of Almighty God dwelt on earth in the tabernacle. This was what the Hebrews would call the Shekinah glory, or literally the glory glory. Here's a great visual of the inner construction of the tabernacle. First, the sockets. Then on top of the sockets were the boards. The boards were were held together by bars that went inside of hooks connected to each of the boards. The bars... There we go. There are the bars. Then came the linen cover over the top. No, you're going too high, Steve. Bring it down. We still got bars. We still got the bars coming in. And then the four inside pillars on which the veil was attached. And then here's the first covering, the first tarp, embroidered with the angels. On top of that is goat's hair cover. 
On top of that is the ram skin dyed red. And then on top of that was the badger skin. Then in the innermost sanctum, the Holy of Holies, was the Ark of the Covenant. Now, if you click right on the lid, it'll actually raise the lid, but don't do that. Whatever you do, don't do that. And then in front of the ark, there was the altar of incense. Again, the veil was between the ark and the altar of incense. Then to the north was the table of showbread. And remember, the tabernacle always looked eastward. Then to the south was the golden menorah, the lampstand. And how many prongs on the menorah? Seven. Seven lamps on the lampstand. And then here was the front door, the four bars and the front veil. And then the inner veil inside the, but separated the holy place from the holy of holies. And then that's it. Isn't that cool? Kind of gives you a good visual of what it is we're talking about tonight. This Bible study's doing better, isn't it? It's great, good. Hey, several years ago, our family had an extremely unpleasant experience involving a tent. Trust me, I remember it well. Nick had a couple of his 11-year-old buddies over to sleep out in the backyard, and we borrowed a tent that we thought we could put together. No big deal. Well, first Nick tried, but to no avail. Next, Zach tried. He walked out, and he got aggravated and mad at Nick. Next, Kathy tried, but she got irritated with the setup, and she got upset at everybody else. Well, finally, Dad decided he would solve this riddle of canvas and poles all clumped together out in the backyard, only to discover that I was as inept as everyone else. The whole family ended up in the backyard embroiled in a huge argument over a silly tent. Guys, that tent became a vent for our frustration and our friction. But you've got to understand, the tent God told Moses to construct had the opposite effect for the family of Israel. This tent became a vent for tremendous peace and praise and ministry and witness. And God called one particular family to set up this tent. And obviously, it wasn't the Adamses. It was the Levites. They were the ones that were to offer the sacrifices and conduct the services. The sons of Levi were the priests, and they were in charge of the tabernacle. The family of Aaron, Moses' brother, was chosen to fill the role of the high priest, we're going to learn later that he was the only person who could enter the Holy of Holies and then only one day a year on the Day of Atonement. Well, in chapter 28, God says to Moses, Now take Aaron, your brother, and his sons with him from among the children of Israel that he may minister to me as priest. Aaron and Aaron's sons, Nadab, Abihu, Eleazar, and Ithamar. And you shall make holy garments for Aaron, your brother, for glory and for beauty. So you shall speak to all who are gifted artisans, whom I have filled with the spirit of wisdom, that they may make Aaron's garments to consecrate him, that he may minister to me as priest. 
Would you notice that the first gift of the Holy Spirit mentioned in the Bible is the gift of needlework? Now, when you make a list of spiritual gifts, don't just include prophet and pastor and teacher and evangelist. Include seamstress. Because here God anoints certain artisans to make these garments for Aaron. He wants these priests decked out in beautiful, glorious threads. As a matter of fact, if you read through the Psalms, you'll discover one of the psalmist's favorite expressions is the beauty of holiness. Did you know holiness is a beautiful thing? Did you know that God is surrounded by beauty and holiness? Holiness is not some drab, dull, hospital white. Holiness is a kaleidoscope bursting with color. It's interesting that Orthodox Jews today and even some Christian ministers dress themselves in black and white and colorless garments in order to show their holiness. What a distorted concept of what holiness truly is. God likes beauty. God likes color. He is surrounded by rich, vibrant, dazzling color. That is the beauty of holiness. Verse 4. And these are the garments which they shall make. And we've got with us tonight. Matt named this guy Tabernacle Ken. <laughs> Doesn't he look like Ken? Must have left Barbie at home. This is Tabernacle Ken. And we're going to use him to sort of understand the garments of the priest. <laughs> okay, first off, he says a breastplate. The breastplate is that part hanging from his shoulders right in the middle. The breastplate was made of 12 stones that rested close to the priest's heart. Next was an ephod or the smock that was worn over the priestly robe, sort of the apron thing to which that breastplate was attached. It had its shoulder pieces, its back part, and its you know, wrapped around here along the waist. Then there was a robe, which is under the multicolored uh, ephod there. Then a skillfully woven tunic, or the coat, the linen coat that was underneath the blue robe that you're seeing on the screen. Then there was a turban or a headdress. Finally, there was a sash, which was tied at the waist. Get it? You see it? Good. Two other items are added later to the priest's wardrobe. In verse 36, a gold plate is attached to the turban. And in verse 42, a pair of linen trousers are made for the priest. And there's some very important things about those trousers we'll notice when we get there. There were eight priestly garments in all. Let's go back over them. There was the breastplate. There was the ephod. There was the robe, there was the skillfully woven tunic, there was a turban, there was a sash. Later we'll see a head plate or a crown, and then finally the linen trousers. Eight garments in all. Verse 5. So they shall make holy garments for Aaron your brother and his sons, that he may minister to me as priests. They shall take the gold, blue, purple, and scarlet thread and fine linen, and they shall make the ephod of gold, blue, purple, and scarlet thread and fine woven linen 
artistically woven. It shall have two shoulder straps joined at its two edges, and so it shall be joined together. The front and the back pieces of the ephod were joined at the shoulders. And the intricately woven band of the ephod, which is on it, shall be of the same workmanship, made of gold, blue, purple, and scarlet thread, and fine woven linen. Then you shall take two onyx stones, and I think we've got a picture, and engrave on them the names of the sons of Israel. This is what the priest wore on his shoulders. Six of their names on one stone and six names on the other stone in order of their birth. They were all in birth order. With the work of an engraver in stone, like the engravings of a signet, you shall engrave the two stones with the names of the sons of Israel. You shall set them in settings of gold, and you shall put the two stones on the shoulders of the ephod as memorial stones for the sons of Israel. So Aaron shall bear their names before the Lord on his two shoulders as a memorial. In other words, the high priest constantly bore the tribes of Israel on his shoulders. You remember, shoulders speak of work. When we want to talk about getting on with it, working hard, what do we say? Put your shoulder to it. Ever use that expression? The shoulder implied work or extra effort. And the priest needed to remember that he worked for the people. His job was to represent God, but was also to make intercession for the people. His job was to keep the Israelites, the people of God, on his shoulders at all times. Verse 13. You shall also make settings of gold, and you shall make two chains of pure gold like braided cords, and fasten the braided chains to the settings. And there you see the chains. From these chains they were attached to the ephod, and from them will hang the breastplate. You shall make the breastplate of judgment. Artistically woven according to the workmanship of the ephod, you shall make it. Of gold, blue, purple, and scarlet thread, and fine woven linen, you shall make it. Apparently it was made of the same design in the material as the ephod. It shall be doubled into a square... A span shall be its length, and a span shall be its width. In other words, the breastplate was folded over into a pouch that hung over the priest's chest. A span was about nine inches. And so this pouch was a span squared, or about nine inches square. And on front of the breastplate were arranged twelve gemstones. Verse 17. And you shall put settings of stone in it, Four rows of stones. The first row shall be a sardius, a topaz, and an emerald. This shall be the first row. The second row shall be a turquoise, a sapphire, and a diamond. The third row, a jacinth, an agate, and an amethyst. In the fourth row, a beryl, an onyx, and a jasper. They shall be set in gold settings. And the stone shall have the names of the sons of Israel, twelve according to their names, like the engravings of a signet, each one with his own name. They shall be according to the twelve tribes. So ingrained on each of these gemstones was the name of the tribe that it represented. Now there is a lot that we could go into about the arrangement of these stones. 
Remember, the names on the priest's shoulders were the names of the tribes according to their birth order. This was probably the case with the gemstones on the breastplate. If so, the sardius stone stood for Reuben, Israel's firstborn. And the name Reuben means, Behold my son, which speaks to us of Jesus' first coming. Behold God's son. The last stone, Jasper, would have represented Benjamin, whose name means son of my right hand, which is a name that foreshadows Jesus' enthronement at the right hand of God and obviously his second coming. It's interesting that these same 12 stones also appear in Revelation chapter 21. They are the foundations of the new Jerusalem, of heaven itself. But in Revelation, and catch this, the first stone mentioned is the last stone on this breastplate, the jasper stone. And I think the reason is that John in Revelation is now looking in reverse. He's just seen the second coming of Christ and thus he mentions it first. There is so many subtleties that we could dig up about the arrangement of these stones on the breastplate. But don't lose sight of the obvious when we look at these stones and here is the obvious truth God sees his people his kids as precious jewels don't miss that that God sees you as a gemstone as a precious jewel that he loves you that he values you greatly you are his diamond you are his sapphire you are his beautiful, expensive, valuable stone. We're living stones in God's family. Well, verses 22 through 28 describe how the breastplate hung from the ephod. God wanted it securely attached, just like he wants us securely attached in Christ Jesus. And you can read these verses on your own later if you'd like. Verse 30, And you shall put in the breastplate of judgment the Urim and the Thummim, and they shall be over Aaron's heart when he goes in before the Lord. So Aaron shall bear the judgment of the children of Israel over his heart before the Lord continually. Now remember this breastplate formed a pouch. And inside the pouch the priest carried the Urim and the Thummim. These names mean lights and perfections. Now what they were, we really don't know. Some people believe that they were two stones. One stone spoke for yes, the other stone spoke for no. And so when the nation needed guidance, the high priest would reach into his pouch and he would pull out the answer, yes or no. They could have been diamonds that either sparkled with a yes or maybe gave off a dim no. Obviously, you'd have to ask your question in a yes or no question, kind of like playing one of those... TV games, you know, you had to, couldn't be a descriptive answer. It had to be a yes or no kind of answer you were looking for. It's interesting. Folks at the Temple Institute in Jerusalem where we just visited, they suggest that the name of God was written on a piece of parchment and actually placed inside this pouch so that when the priest needed guidance, the name of God would shine through the breastplate 
and would illuminate certain letters that were written on these stones, the names of the tribes on these stones, and actually spell out a specific message to the people. It was God's way of communicating His will to the people. Here's what we know for sure. Today, God has already spelled out His will to His people. We have all we need to know right here in our Bibles. God's Spirit today guides us through God's Word. Today, God speaks to us. He speaks to His people by the using and the thumbum, thumbing, by the using and the thumbing through the pages of the Scripture. That's our using and thumbum. Verse 31. You shall make the robe of the ephod all of blue. There shall be an opening for his head in the middle of it. It shall have a woven binding all around its opening, like the opening in a coat of mail or, or armor, so that it does not tear. And upon its hem you shall make pomegranates of blue, purple, and scarlet all around its hem. These were decorative. And bells of gold between them all around. A golden bell and a pomegranate. A golden bell and a pomegranate upon the hem of the robe all around. And it shall be upon Aaron when he ministers. And its sound will be heard when he goes into the holy place before the Lord. And when he comes out that he may not die. The bells let you know that the priest was still active, that he was moving around, that he was alive, that God had not judged him for his sin and struck him dead. If the people outside stopped hearing the little jingle bells on the bottom of his robe, they knew that the priest was a dead ringer. There is a Jewish legend that tells us that the high priest would even have a rope tied to his ankle. And I don't know if this is true or not. It's, it's a legend. But that the high priest would have a rope tied to his ankle. So that if he died, if he was judged for his sin in the inner court, he could be pulled out without the retrievers having to risk their own lives by going in after him. It all showed how little confidence the Hebrews had of entering into God's presence. They were afraid. They were scared of judgment. Compare that to our confidence in Christ Jesus. Did you know what Hebrews tells us? Do you know what Hebrews assures us? Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace. Don't be timid. Don't be shy about approaching God. Come boldly to the throne of grace. You've been covered by the blood of Jesus that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Jesus abolishes our sin totally and completely. Our pardon is full and free. There is no reason for us, those of us who are in Christ, to be fearful about reaching out to God for help, about entering into His presence today. Verse 36. You shall also make a plate of pure gold, and engrave on it, like the engraving of a signet, holiness to the Lord. And you shall put it on a blue cord, that it may be on the turban. It shall be on the front of the turban, so it shall be on Aaron's forehead. The priest wore 
or it shall be on Aaron's forehead, that Aaron may bear the iniquity of the holy things which the children of Israel hallow in all their holy gifts, and it shall always be on his forehead, that they may be accepted before the Lord. The priest wore this plate on his forehead. Recently I read where a fellow went on eBay and he rented out his forehead for advertising space. He figured, why let that space above your eyes go to waste? And so he actually went on the eBay and for $37,000, a company bought his forehead to advertise their product. Can you imagine? But understand, the priest, the priest did the same thing in essence. He had holiness to the Lord on his forehead. He promoted God's holiness, God's purity, God's set-apartness. The priest was a walking billboard, you might say. Wouldn't it be a good idea if you and I had an imaginary plate? If we would just take an imaginary plate that said holiness to the Lord, and if we would just sort of hang that from our forehead at all times to remind us of God's holiness so that every time an image went into our eyes or every time a thought went into our head, any time that might happen, that it would have to pass muster with the holiness of the Lord. Wouldn't that be a good idea? Wouldn't that be important to us? Remember, the spiritual battle is won or lost in the arena of the mind. Well, notice this place on Aaron's forehead. It says that Aaron, it's there, that Aaron may bear the iniquity of the holy things. Isn't that interesting? The iniquity of the holy things. What a strange expression. It's interesting that not until Jesus came as our sacrifice was the sacrifice itself enough to cover our sin. That's why the blood of bulls and goats, that's why not one bull was able to do the job. That's why these offerings were done over and over and over and over because the sacrifices they were offering were impure in and of themselves. It wasn't until Jesus came as our sacrifice that the sacrifice actually atoned for sin. Prior to that, each of the sacrifices was impure and tainted with sin. That's why the, holy, the high priest always brought an imperfect sacrifice at the very best. And thus God accepted it really only because of His mercy. It wasn't until Jesus came that our sin was truly once and for all atoned for. And here we find it, that Aaron may bear the iniquity of the holy things. An interesting phrase. Well, verse 39, And you shall skillfully weave the tunic of fine linen thread, you shall make the turban of fine linen, and you shall make the sash of woven work. For Aaron's sons you shall make tunics, and you shall make sashes for them, and you shall make hats for them for glory and beauty, so that you shall put them on Aaron your brother and on his sons with him. You shall anoint them, consecrate them, and sanctify them, that they may minister to me as priests. Verse 42, very important, especially for you high school guys. Listen to this. And you shall make for them linen trousers to cover their nakedness. They shall reach from the waist. 
to the thighs. Notice two characteristics about these priestly pants. First of all, they were Bermuda shorts. They reached from the waist down to the thighs. But perhaps most importantly, notice, they started at the waist, not the hips. The priests were forbidden to sag. (laughs) And to my knowledge, this is the only pair of pants that God ever designed. So obviously he didn't want them to sag. Verse 43. They shall be on Aaron and on his sons when they come into the tabernacle of meeting or when they come near the altar to minister in the holy place that they do not incur iniquity and die. In other words, the pants were designed for modesty. And if the priest were to expose himself, he were sagging, you know, and accidentally his pants just slipped down and he exposed himself in a holy place, He would desecrate the altar. God might strike him dead. It shall be a statute forever to him and his descendants after him. Hebrews 7 explains that we have a better priest. That Jesus Christ is our great high priest. And notice the contrast between his garments and these priestly garments we've just studied. Jesus wore a purple robe for mocking. Not a beautiful ephod. Jesus had no precious gems on his shoulders, only a cross of wood. Jesus had no breastplate, and yet he had an incredible, infinite love for Israel and for his people, for all humanity. Folks around Jesus didn't hear little jingling bells. They just heard the pounding of nails. No linen turban adorned Jesus' head, only a crown of thorns. No head plate read holiness, and yet Jesus' life and death shouted out his holiness. And no linen trousers hid his nakedness. Jesus bore our guilt and our shame upon that cross. Well, chapter 29. And this is what you shall do to them to hallow them for ministering to me as priests. In other words, here's how you're to dedicate the priests. Take one young bull and two rams without blemish and unleavened bread, unleavened cakes mixed with oil, and unleavened wafers anointed with oil. You shall make them of wheat flour. You shall put them in one basket and bring them in the basket with the bull and the two rams. And Aaron and his sons you shall bring to the door of the tabernacle of meeting, and you shall wash them with water. And I'm sure they were excited. This was their priestly commission, their dedication ceremony. Then you shall take the garments, put the tunic on Aaron, and the robe of the ephod, the ephod, and the breastplate, and gird him with the intricately woven band of the ephod. You shall put the turban on his head, and then put the holy crown on the turban, that plate that read, Holiness to the Lord. In other words, fitting for the service of the Lord. And I I want you to notice that the priest is fit for the service of the Lord only in the garments that the Lord has provided for him. Notice that. These are not garments he brought from home. These are the garments that God had provided for him. And the same is true for us, guys. I don't care what clothes you might bring from home. The only thing that makes you fit for God, 
pleasing to him and fit for his service is the righteousness that he provides. Is the righteousness of Jesus Christ that he provides for us. The garments that he clothes us with. Your garments from home are no good. They won't make you fit for service and they won't make you pleasing to God. We only stand righteousness in the garments that he provides. And you shall take the anointing oil, pour it on his head and anoint him. Then you shall bring his sons and put tunics on them. And you shall gird them with sashes, Aaron and his sons, and put the hats on them. And the priesthood shall be theirs for a perpetual statute. So you shall consecrate Aaron and his sons. Verse 10. And you shall also have the bull brought before the tabernacle of meeting. And Aaron and his son shall put their hands on the head of the bull. The laying on of hands symbolized the transference of sin. And I want you to understand, the Hebrew word for laying on of hands implies more than a light touch. This was an emotional moment. The priest placed his hands on the head of the bull and he pressed down hard. You know, he literally leaned on the bull. Thus the priest thrust all of his sin on the sacrifice. Then you shall kill the bull before the Lord by the door of the tabernacle of meeting. And you shall take some of the blood of the bull and put it on the horns of the altar with your finger. And pour all the blood beside the face of the altar. And you shall take all the fat that covers the entrails, the fatty lobe attached to the liver, and the two kidneys and the fat that is on them, and burn them on the altar. Verse 14. But the flesh of the bull, with its skin and its offal, you shall burn with fire outside the camp, for it is a sin offering. It's interesting. Jesus, too, was sacrificed outside the camp. Those of us who just went to Israel now understand that Jesus was sacrificed at the place of the skull at Golgotha. And the place of the skull was outside the camp. It was outside the northern wall of Jerusalem. Verse 15. You shall also take one ram, and Aaron and his son shall put their hands on the head of the ram, and you shall kill the ram, and you shall take its blood and sprinkle it all around the altar. Then you shall cut the ram in pieces, wash its entrails and its legs, and put them with its pieces and with its head. And you shall burn the whole ram on the altar. It is a burnt offering to the Lord. It is a sweet aroma, an offering made by fire to the Lord. Now we've talked about a sin offering. Now we're talking about a burnt offering. There were actually seven different sacrifices that were offered. And we're going to study and learn the differences of the sacrifices when we get to the book of Leviticus. So just hold on for a few more weeks. You shall also take the other ram... And Aaron and his sons shall put their hands on the head of the ram. Then you shall kill the ram. And notice this. And take some of its blood and put it on the tip of the right ear of Aaron. And on the tip of the right ear of his sons. And on the thumb of their right hand and on the big toe of their right foot. And sprinkle the blood all around the altar. Notice the extent to which they were dedicated to the Lord. In essence, from head to toe. Notice that? Did you know that God wants all of you? That God wants to possess you from head to toe? That God wants you to dedicate yourself to Him from head to toe? Dedicate your ears to God. To hear only His word. Dedicate your hands to God to do only His will. Dedicate your feet to God. 
to walk only in his ways. I hope you'll be dedicated to God from head to toe. Verse 21. And you shall take some of the blood that is on the altar and some of the anointing oil and sprinkle it on Aaron and on his garments and on his sons and on the garments of his sons with him. And he and his garments shall be hallowed and his sons and his sons' garments with him. Priests were always covered with blood. Their job was to butcher the sacrifices. And so here they're breaking in this new uniform. And notice too the anointing of blood and oil. Notice that double anointing. It was Spurgeon who wrote this. We need to know that double anointing. The blood of Jesus which cleanses and the oil of the Spirit which perfumes us. It is well to see how these two blend in one. We need both too. Both the cleansing that comes through the blood of Jesus and the power that comes through the anointing of the oil of the Holy Spirit. We need a double anointing. Also you shall take the fat of the ram, the fat tail, and the fat that covers the entrails, the fatty lobe attached to the liver, the two kidneys and the fat on them, the right thigh, for it is a ram of consecration. And you thought God wasn't interested in fat. Apparently fat is not a bad thing. One loaf of bread, one cake made with oil, and one wafer from the basket of the unleavened bread that is before the Lord. And you shall put all these in the hands of Aaron and in the hands of his sons. And you shall wave them as a wave offering before the Lord. And here is the first time in history that a group of people do the wave. Yeah, yeah. They present a wave offering to the Lord. Notice the fat, notice this, the fat always belongs to the Lord. The abundance, the excess in essence, always belongs to the Lord. But the meat of the sacrifice belongs to the priest. Notice verse 25. You shall receive them back from their hands and burn them on the altar as a burnt offering, as a sweet aroma before the Lord. It is an offering made by fire to the Lord. But then you shall take the breast of the ram of Aaron's consecration. This was a good cut of meat. This is not fat. This is the, the, the breast. And wave it as a wave offering before the Lord, and it shall be your portion. And from the ram of the consecration, you shall consecrate the breast of the wave offering which is waved. And notice this, and the thigh, thigh is another good piece of meat, of the heave offering which is raised, of that which is for Aaron and of that which is for his sons. Get a two-piece dinner at KFC, and what do you get? A breast and a thigh. That's what the priest got. Verse 28. It shall be from the children of Israel for Aaron and his sons by statute forever, for it is a heave offering. Notice we wave a wave offering, so what do you imagine we do with a heave offering? We heave it. We just kind of heave it up to the Lord. You wave the wave offering. You heave the heave offering. Just kind of push it up to the Lord. It shall be a heave offering from the children of Israel, from the sacrifices of their peace offerings, that is their heave offering to the Lord. And the holy garments of Aaron shall be his sons after him to be anointed in them and to be consecrated in them. 
That son who becomes the priest in his place shall put them on for seven days when he enters the tabernacle of meeting to minister in the holy place. The succession of the high priest will be passed down among Aaron's family, among his sons. And here he describes the dedication of the new high priest. Verse 31. And you shall take the ram of the consecration and boil its flesh in the holy place. Then Aaron and his son shall eat the flesh of the ram and the bread that is in the basket by the door of the tabernacle of meeting. They shall eat those things with which the atonement was made to consecrate and to sanctify them. But an outsider shall not eat them because they are holy. And if any of the flesh of the consecration offerings or of the bread remains until the morning, then you shall burn the remainder with fire. It shall not be eaten because it is holy. And remember, in ancient culture, eating was the strongest expression of unity and cooperation between two people. Boy, if we ate together, we became one with each other. And thus, the priest eating his portion of the sacrifice was his affirmation of the dedication that had just been worked for, on his behalf. Well, verse 35, Thus you shall do to Aaron and his sons, according to all that I have commanded you, seven days you shall consecrate them. This whole dedication procedure, what we've just read about, was repeated for seven days. Well, verse 36 through 42 lists some daily sacrifices that were carried out by the priest. Each day a bull was to be sacrificed to freshly dedicate the altar of God. Each morning and each evening a lamb along with a grain offering and a drink offering, flour and wine were offered as an expression of the people's desire to please the Lord. As, as Moses put it, as a sweet aroma to the Lord. Notice down in verse 43, the Lord promises that at this tabernacle, I will meet with the children of Israel, and the tabernacle shall be sanctified by my glory. So I will consecrate the tabernacle of meeting and the altar. I will also consecrate both Aaron and his sons to minister to me as priests, I will dwell among the children of Israel and will be their God. And they shall know that I am the Lord their God who brought them up out of the land of Egypt that I may dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. The tabernacle of meeting will be a special place between God and his people. Well, in chapter 30, God instructs Moses to build more furniture for the tabernacle. You shall make an altar to burn incense on. You shall make it of acacia wood. A cubit shall be its length and a cubit its width. It shall be square and two cubits shall be its height. This was a small table. It was a foot and a half long by a foot and a half wide by three feet tall. As we mentioned earlier, the table of incense sat right in front of the ark just outside of the veil. And the smoke of the incense would permeate through the veil and enter into the Holy of Holies and represent the prayers of God's people. Now its horns shall be of one piece with it, and you shall overlay its top, its sides all around, and its horns with pure gold. And you shall make for it a molding of gold all around. Two gold rings you shall make for it under the molding on both of its sides. You shall place them on its two sides, and they shall be holders for the poles with which to bear it. 
You shall make the poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. And you shall put it before the veil that is before the ark of the testimony, before the mercy seat that is over the testimony, where I will meet with you. Now, where is the veil supposed to be? It is before the ark of the testimony, outside, before the veil. God clearly states that. But... When you get to Hebrews chapter 9, verses 3 and 4, we have a problem. For the writer there says that the altar of incense was behind the veil. So which was it? It was both. No contradiction, it was both. And here's how. The altar itself sat in front of the veil. But this incense that burned on the altar, it wafted, it permeated, it, it traveled behind the veil into the presence of God. So the altar sat outside, but the incense that was burned on it entered in. And this is a lesson for us. In Ephesians 2 verse 6, Paul says that we have been seated in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And you say, well, if that's true, why am I going to be stuck in traffic tomorrow morning? Hey, the altar of incense is a model for every believer. We are always in two places at the same time. Physically, we're on earth. But spiritually, we are in Christ. We are seated in heavenly places and by living in a constant awareness of God's presence, we can experience God's heavenly blessings even here on the earth. Yes, I'm seated in traffic tomorrow morning, but I'll also be seated in heavenly places. Yes, the altar is before the veil, but through prayer, the altar was able to go behind the veil into the presence of God, just as you are, just as I am. We can live our lives in heavenly places, behind the veil, in the presence of God, through prayer. Verse 7. Aaron shall burn on it sweet incense every morning. When he tends the lamps, he shall burn incense on it. And when Aaron lights the lamps at twilight, he shall burn incense on it. A perpetual incense before the Lord throughout your generations. A sweet smell always emanated from the tabernacle. Remember, all these pieces of the tabernacle furniture spoke of Jesus Christ, and the altar of incense was no exception. Remember, the table of showbed reminds us that Jesus is the bread of life. The golden lampstand reminds us that Jesus is the light of the world. And likewise, this altar of incense speaks of the priesthood of Jesus. Did you know what Jesus is doing right now? He is at the right hand of the throne of God praying for you, making intercession on your behalf. He too is the altar of incense. Verse 9, you shall not offer strange incense on it or a burnt offering or a grain offering, nor shall you pour a drink offering on it. This altar of incense was not a place of sacrifice except for once a year. For Aaron shall make atonement upon its horns once a year with the blood of the sin offering of atonement. Once a year he shall make atonement upon it throughout your generations. It is most holy to the Lord. I want you to notice a lesson for us. It is not our prayer that saves us. Understand that. 
It is the blood of Jesus that saves us. That's why this altar, it, it was not to be an altar of sacrifice. It was an altar of incense. Sacrifice still needed to be offered. Prayer only appropriates the blood. Atonement, remember, always requires a sacrifice. Verse 11. Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, When you take the census of the children of Israel for their number, then every man shall give a ransom for himself to the Lord when you number them, that there, there may be no plague among them when you number them. This is what everyone among those who are numbered shall give. Half a shekel according to the shekel of the sanctuary. A shekel is 20 gera. The half shekel shall be an offering to the Lord. Everyone included among those who are numbered from 20 years old and above shall give an offering to the Lord. The rich shall not give more and the poor shall not give less than half a shekel when you give an offering to the Lord to make atonement for yourselves. This was truly a flat tax. No deductions for the poor, no penalties for the rich. Flat tax, half a shekel for everybody. And you shall take the atonement money of the children of Israel and shall appoint it for the service of the tabernacle of meeting. Now we've talked about sacrifices and oil and incense that were needed for the tabernacle. And guys, it all costs money. And that's why they exacted this half a shekel tax. He says that it may be a memorial for the children of Israel before the Lord to make atonement for yourselves. God paid for the tabernacle expenses with a flat tax, which is exactly the principle behind the tithe. For whether you're rich or whether you're poor, the ratio is the same. It's 10% for everybody. That's a tithe. Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, You shall also make a laver of bronze with its base also of bronze for washing. You shall put it between the tabernacle of meeting and the altar. And do we have a picture? And you shall put water in it, for Aaron and his sons shall wash their hands and their feet in water from it when they go into the tabernacle of meeting or when they come near the altar to minister to burn an offering made by fire to the Lord, they shall wash with water lest they die. So they shall wash their hands and their feet lest they die. And it shall be a statue forever to them, to him and his descendants throughout their generations. And you thought washing up was just something your mother thought was important. In the outer court between the bronze altar of sacrifice in the holy place was this bronze laver or lavatory or washing bowl. And here the priest washed up before entering the tent. Understand, in Scripture, there are two types of cleansing. Spiritual cleansing affects the inner man. And it occurs on the altar. The penalty of sin is always the blood of a sacrifice. But you see, the outer man is cleansed at the laver. For here, it's not my soul that's saved. It's not my inner man that's washed. At the laver, my mind, my hands are washed. And they're renewed with the water of God's word. The sacrifices cleanses our inner man, whereas the word of God cleanses our mind and our emotions and our outer man. At the laver, we are prepared to enter in and worship. It's interesting, the labor was the only piece of furniture that was given no dimensions. In the tabernacle, 
It was a small bowl. Later in the temple, it's called the Brazen Sea. And it was a huge reservoir that sat on the back of 12 stone oxen. In Revelation 15, when we look to heaven at the real laver, it's even larger. There it's called a sea of glass. Verse 22 says, Moreover, the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Also take for yourself quality spices, 500 shekels of liquid myrrh, half as much sweet-smelling cinnamon, 250 shekels, 250 shekels of sweet-smelling cane, 500 shekels of cassia, according to the shekel of the sanctuary, and a hen of olive oil. And you shall make from these a holy anointing oil, an ointment compounded according to the art of the perfumer. It shall be a holy anointing oil. According to verses 26 through 31, this oil is used to anoint the tabernacle and the ark and all its furniture and the priests. And it's made of special ingredients and it is skillfully concocted. Verse 32 tells us that the oil shall not be poured on man's flesh. That is so important. Remember, anointing oil was symbolic of the Holy Spirit. And the Spirit will never anoint or empower our flesh. Our selfish ambitions. The Spirit always seeks to glorify God, not man. He says, nor shall you make any other like it according to its composition. It is holy and it shall be holy to you. And notice the work of the Spirit also should not be imitated. God frowns on those who attempt the work of the Spirit through their own power, imitation. He says, and whoever compounds any like it, whoever puts any of it on an outsider shall be cut off from his people. I like this too. For the Spirit of God is not some mysterious force accessible to just anyone. No, the power of the Holy Spirit is exclusively a gift for God's children. The rest of the chapter is a recipe for this incense that was to be burned in the tabernacle. And it too was not to be duplicated. It also was holy to the Lord. Well, chapter 31 says, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, See, I have called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. And I have filled him with the Spirit of God, in wisdom, in understanding, in knowledge, and in all manner of workmanship, to design artistic works, to work in gold, in silver, in bronze, in cutting jewels for setting, in carving wood, and to work in all manner of workmanship. And I, indeed I, have appointed with him Aholiab, the son of Ahizamach of the tribe of Dan. And I have put wisdom in the hearts of all who are gifted artisans, that they may make all that I have commanded you. Imagine the skilled labor needed to construct the tabernacle. I mean, Moses needed people talented in the work of metals and embroidery and fabric and leather and woods and oils and incense. I mean, think of all the people that would require and all the different skills. We get bent out of shape when we don't have enough nursery workers. But here is a truth. Where God guides, God provides. And that was certainly true in the tabernacle. God supernaturally gifted and then raised up these workers. Bezalel, Aholiab were filled with the Holy Spirit so that they could mold metal and cut jewels and carve wood. Again, these are spiritual gifts. Woodcutter, diamond cutter, 
verses 7 through 11, God renames various items that need to be constructed. You can read those. And then in verse 12, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak also to the children of Israel, Surely my Sabbaths you shall keep. For it is a sign between me and you throughout your generations that you may know that I am the Lord who sanctifies you. Now notice, God has given Moses a monumental job. Remember, the tabernacle was a small-scale model of heaven itself. It spoke of Jesus Christ who would save the world. I mean, this was a significant undertaking, the construction of the tabernacle. And yet, as important as this work might be, and before the first task was ever assigned, notice God makes it clear to Moses that he still needs to rest one day in seven. I hope you've noticed that. That no matter how important you think your task is, no, how, no matter how significant you think your work might be, it is still important that we take one day in seven to pray and play, to rest from our labors and renew and refresh our energies. Notice the sign of their covenant with God was not the tabernacle. It was the Sabbath. He says, you shall keep the Sabbath, therefore, for it is holy to you. Everyone who profanes it shall surely be put to death, for whoever does any work on it, that person shall be cut off from among his people. For the Christian, Jesus has become our Sabbath rest. And so we are no longer under the law of the Sabbath. And yet, trust me, guys, it is still a healthy principle. Take a break from life, or life will break you. We all are wise in setting aside one day in seven to rest, to worship, to trust the Lord. And hey, you know, the verse is still true. The person who overworks and ignores the Sabbath, he'll be cut off from his people. His wife won't know him anymore. His kids won't care who he is. And he'll also surely be put to death, probably by a massive coronary. You need a Sabbath. You need one day in seven to rest and renew. Verse 15. Work shall be done for six days, but the seventh is the Sabbath of rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath day, he shall surely be put to death. Therefore, the children of Israel shall keep the Sabbath. To observe the Sabbath throughout their generations is a perpetual covenant. It is a sign between me and the children of Israel forever. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. And when he had made an end of speaking with him on Mount Sinai, he gave Moses two tablets of the testimony, the Ten Commandments, tablets of stone written with the finger of God. And as Moses descends this mountain, something happens to these two tablets Moses becomes the first person ever to break all Ten Commandments at one time. And we're going to read about that next week.